So as many of you know, as I keep reminding you, this upcoming Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, I've got to use one more opening illustration to talk about it. And this morning, I simply want to set up for one of the things we're going to learn today in our passage, dealing with Martin Luther. And you'll see some pictures here up on the screen. And of course, the exact event we're celebrating is the nailing of the 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door, which many say kicked off the Reformation, in a sense, uh, his, uh, his theses going viral. And then, uh, as you'll see, eventually, the middle picture uh, on here was his trial. And that event of his trial was incredible, because past would-be reformers, when they stood against the Catholic Church, and said, no, I stand upon the word of God, they were typically killed. Martin Luther did that very thing with his famous speech, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Then he turns around and walks out of that courtroom at the Diet of Worms. And it's one of these mysteries of church history. Why did no one grab him? Why did no one arrest him? Why a 100 years prior when John Huss did the very same thing, he was put in jail and eventually burnt at the stake the very next day. But Martin Luther walked free as a commotion erupted in this room. And I believe because of what happened next, which was really the heart of the Reformation, he went home, was kidnapped by his prince protector, Frederick the Wise, who took him away to one of his castles. And in that castle, Martin Luther, in just a few months, translated the New Testament from Latin, actually from Greek, into German. Because before that time, for many centuries, The Word of God was held captive in a dead language that nobody could read, the language of Latin. And so Martin Luther writes the German New Testament from the Greek, and that's where the Reformation broke out, as the men and women of Germany could read God's Word in their own language, the heart of the Reformation. And it brings us to today's passage where we're going to see God work in in a sovereign way, in a very similar way that makes us ask questions like, Why did John Huss go to the stake and was burnt to death, but Martin Luther goes free? Today we're going to see the apostles get persecuted. Why was James killed, but Peter was released? And the reason is because God is sovereign, and he's working in ways that we could never imagine to accomplish his mission and his purpose. And we're going to see a reminder of that very thing today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead now and turn to Acts chapter 12. That's where we will be. And uh, we're coming to the end of our current mini-series. And if you're visiting with us, you're a guest, we've uh, been in this current mini-series within Acts called Launch Prep. And we've been going through the entire book over the past several months. And what Launch Prep means is between chapters 10 and 12, we we see God preparing the church for the great mission to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And so several things had to take place. We needed a change of heart in Peter the head apostle. We needed a change of heart happening in the Jerusalem church who didn't think the gospel could go to the Gentiles. We needed to see God, the Holy Spirit, poured out upon the Gentiles at the Gentile Pentecost in Caesarea. And then last week, we saw this very strategic church plant in Antioch, which would become the new staging area, the next great mission-sending church in addition to Jerusalem as Paul's base of operations, really, for what's coming with his mission. But before we continue on, Luke, as I mentioned earlier, wants us to know something, that as, as, as everything's going to start focusing on the Gentiles and, and moving towards Europe, Luke wants us to know that God's not done with Israel, that God's not done with the Jews, that 
during all this, he's still working in his sovereign way amongst the Jews to bring many to faith in Christ. And that's really the point of chapter 12. And you'll see the title, or you, you probably saw the title up on the screen for today's sermon. It's the King of the Jews. And this passage centers around King Herod. And so as we're reading, you might think that's what my title is about, King Herod, and it's not. It's the real king of the Jews, the Lord God. And it's going to become more and more apparent as we work through the text. Now, this chapter, we read it in our small group Sunday night, and I blurted out after we finished reading it, I want to see the movie. This is an incredible chapter, full of adventure, full of suspense, even some humor and some incredible ironies that we're going to see as we work our way through this. But a wonderful passage. And we're going to see some major contrast in here, too, where we really get the, the teaching points that God wants us to see as we travel through together. So up on the screen next, you'll see the big idea for today's passage, what, what I believe the point of it is, and that will lead to some of our application as well. Today, Luke reveals three ways in which the Lord maintains sovereign control over the circumstances that face the Judean church. Let's go back to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you so much, again, for even just this opportunity. We're reading about things that are so important to our family story as Christians that if they did not happen how they did, we may not be sitting here today. So as we read them, let us have great appreciation for the work that you did, but also know you're still working today in the same way you worked then. And let us surrender as individuals and as a family on mission to your continued spread of the gospel, your continued great commission to bring your children to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, thank you for this opportunity we have today to study Luke 12. Let uh, us, our ears and, and our hearts to be open to what you would say to us today, that we can apply your truth for your glory. And if there's anyone in here today who doesn't know you, I pray that you would break through into their heart and lead them to repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first way that we're going to see God reveal his sovereignty in the church is by allowing Herod's attacks, allowing Herod's attacks. Now, if you look at Acts 12, verse 1, there's two things that I have to spend some time establishing so that we can appreciate the richness of this passage. And the first one is the phrase, about that time. When did this happen in relation to what we've been learning recently with the church at Antioch, and the, uh, the famine that we talked about last week. And so you have to understand that ancient historians like Luke would often group events together, but they wouldn't always put them in perfect chronological order. And, and I believe that's the case here. So I have a slide up on the screen that kind of helps us really look at a possible timeline. We don't know for sure, but this is what I think the timeline is based on where we've been and where we're going today. And so the first three you see up there, that's, all, that's what we learned last week. Okay, the, the church at Antioch being started, Paul and Barnabas' initial ministry at the church at Antioch, and then Agabus the prophet came, and he prophesied about a famine that would hit Judea. And then uh, we ended last week looking at this collection of this, uh, this, this offering, and then Paul and Barnabas took it to Jerusalem. But I believe the events that we're looking at today bolded there for us, where Herod persecutes the apostles, and eventually we'll see him die today. I believe that takes place in between the prophecy and the actual collection of the money that would happen a few years later. So that's where we are as far as time. The second thing that we have to uh, 
uh, uncover is who is this Herod? Because you see the very next thing, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So there's a lot of Herods in the New Testament. If you've read your New Testament, you'll notice that name keeps popping up. And unless this guy is like 90 years old, there must be different Herods. And indeed, that is the case. So again, another slide to help us out that I put together. And basically, the first Herod we meet is Herod the Great. He's the original guy. Now, these weren't Jewish people. You've probably heard before. They were Edomites, so they're descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And uh, Herod was uh, this king. He, he was a king because of the Roman uh, emperor made him king and gave him all the territory of Palestine. And, of course, he was the king during Jesus' birth, and we know those stories. And then we meet Herod Antipas, and he was the Herod who actually killed John the Baptist, and he's also the same Herod in Luke's gospel who tried Jesus. It's never a good thing to try Jesus, by the way, because he lost that day. But anyways, that's who he was, and he was what's called a tetrarch. He wasn't a king. After Herod died, his kingdom was broken up into four, four parts. Three of those parts were given to his sons, Antipas, also Philip, and Lysanias. The, the main part, which was Judea, where Jerusalem is, was given to a procurator like Pontius Pilate. And that governor-type individual ruled that part for like 35 years. In fact, our king today, King Herod Agrippa, was the first king to get this, that very important piece back. Now, you have to understand something about Agrippa. He, um, got to grow, he was able to grow up in Rome. And two of his best friends growing up in Rome were future Roman emperors. Pretty good friends to have, right? So when everyone's all grown up, his uh, one friend Gaius becomes emperor, and he makes Agrippa the king. In fact, he's the first king of the Jews since his grandfather, Herod the Great. And there will be a quiz, by the way, afterwards. So hopefully you guys are getting all this. So Herod Agrippa is the Herod we're dealing with today. And then his other friend became the emperor, Claudius. And he restored all four parts of the kingdom him. So indeed, Herod Agrippa, our king today that we're looking at, was the king of the Jews. And then you'll see some other of his children we'll meet later in the book of Acts. So, okay, that sets the context. Now we know who we're talking about and when we are looking at. So let's look and see how God sovereignly allowed these attacks to happen to the church. Look, pick up with me in verse 2. Let's look at what Herod did. He killed James, the brother of John. With the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. Let's stop there. Uh, So we see something for the very first time. We see the heat turned up on the leaders. Of the church. Now, we saw the apostles arrested early in the book of Acts, and then they were always released, but none of them were ever killed. Something has changed now, and what changed was Herod Agrippa becoming king of the Jews. He's now in charge of this region, which was, it used to be run by governors like Pontius Pilate. And one of the things about him that history tells us, even outside the scripture, is he wanted to please the Jews. He was all about status quo and keeping the peace. And so anyone that was a minority that was stirring up the peace, he was going to shut that down. He was going to persecute them. And what have the apostles been doing lately, namely Peter? They've been extending an open door to the Gentiles, bringing them into the church. 
the Jews up until now had tolerated the Jerusalem church because of the fact they were still pretty much Jewish. But as we've seen in the past several weeks, Gentiles are now being brought in. So the Jews are not so happy with Peter and the other apostles. And so what's happening here is Herod, with that, is looking to please the people, and so he kills James, the first apostle to die. Now, if you notice the names we see here, James, John, and Peter, what did those three apostles have in common? If you remember from the Gospels, that was Jesus' inner circle, the three that he would always take off separately. And all three of them here are affected greatly. One of them's killed. One of them has his brother killed. And then Peter, of course, as we see, the main character of this passage is arrested. And so we see him thrown in prison. Now, how many of you like holidays? I love the holidays, right? And this is the season to love the holidays. We've got Halloween coming up. We've got Thanksgiving coming up. We've got Christmas and New Year. It's almost everybody's favorite time of the year. I know it's a tough time for some folks, but the holidays are great. And let me tell you, Peter loved the holidays here because the holidays kept him alive for another week. He was arrested right at the beginning of Passover, and Herod could not do a thing to him until the Passover was over. So it gave him another week But the week is out. This is the night before uh, Herod was planning to have a a mock trial, really a show trial. And by the context of our passage, he was planning to kill Peter just like he killed James. And so they guard him with four squads of soldiers. This would be 16 Roman soldiers. And they would rotate squads of four. And as we're going to see, there would be one sitting on either side of Peter, and they'd be handcuffed together. So he's handcuffed to two separate Roman soldiers. And then there's two more standing outside. Every few hours, they would rotate these four squads. And so we would call this maximum security. Maximum security is happening here. So that sets the stage. We see what's happening. God is allowing Herod's attacks. And what I want to do before we move on is is kind of come to the application part because there's some important things we have to understand when it comes to God allowing bad things to happen to his people, right? And one of the reasons I think that we, we, we miss this is because we have this health and wealth gospel, this prosperity gospel in our country that I believe teaches heresy when they say that God never authors anything bad to happen. God only wants good for your life. The bad stuff, God never allows that. That's really your fault. So you need to pray more. You need to have more faith. You need to give more money, namely to me and my ministry. But anyways, let me move on from that. And that health and wealth gospel has taken us away from a key teaching in Scripture is that God is sovereign even in the storms of life. He is God whether we're in a time of feast, and he is still God even in the times of famine. And God not only allows bad things to happen, sometimes he's the author of them. And I believe that's what's happening here. I believe he allowed the death of James because he's doing something so amazing and preparing the church for something so amazing that we don't even begin to understand. And so one of the key application points I want to encourage you is that God is sovereign in the storms of life. He hasn't changed. He is still God. In fact, in in many ways, he's behind what's happening. And it's our job to learn to trust him. Like Paul tells us all the time, to keep our eyes on things above and not be discouraged. And some key books that you can go to as tools if you're in that type of period now, of course, Job is a great place to go to see that. But there's a shorter Old Testament book that many Christians aren't familiar with that's really useful. I've used it in some of the low points of my life, and that's Habakkuk. It's only three chapters long. And at the beginning of Habakkuk, he starts complaining, right? I 
By the way, I complain all the time. I don't know if you're with me on that. But Habakkuk's complaining to God, and God cuts him off. He says, Habakkuk, if I even begin to tell you or try to explain to you what I was doing, you wouldn't understand anyway. Just trust me. And by the end of the letter, Habakkuk's like, hey, even if the, the, the earth ends, basically, you're God and I trust you. And that's where God's always working to get us, to trust him in the storm. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But I also want us to see something else. Look at the, the end of verse 5. Look at this major contrast. Peter's in prison. They're, they're leader of the church, the first among equals and the apostles. But look at the action of the church. It doesn't say the church panicked. No. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Look at that beautiful contrast. What a great example for us. Prayer must become the heartbeat of our lives as Christians and as a church to commune with God. God is sovereign. He's going to do his thing, but we are healthiest when we're on our knees, when we're depending upon him, when we're coming to him, whether it's famine or feast, and glorifying him and depending upon him in those times. And here's one of my favorite passages when it comes to prayer, and it's really good for this context. And if if you were ever in Awana or you had to do Bible memorization as a kid, this was like your favorite passage because you could get three verses, right, uh, and, and really the space of one. But look what Paul's teaching us here. Rejoice always. And the context there is regardless of circumstances. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean we have to pray every second. But what it means is that throughout the day, we have a continual on again and off again and on again conversation with God, just a relationship with him where we're just talking and having an ongoing conversation. But pray without ceasing. And then finally, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, the good or the bad. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we've seen the first way that God is sovereign in allowing these attacks against his apostles. The second way in this passage we're going to see his sovereignty in the church is by thwarting Herod's Plans. And this is where you start to see the switch from the false king of the Jews to who the real king of the Jews is. And so uh, now when it comes to God's power, what can I use to illustrate or give an adequate metaphor for the power of God? Because his power is limitless. And I can't even begin to understand his power. It's so amazing. But I'm going to try to give an illustration. As fall, it's going to fall very short, but it's the best I can do. And it has to do in the realm of law enforcement. Now, you, you all know that police officers have a lot of authority. But did you know that a police officer cannot pull you over unless he or she has probable cause? They don't have that much power and authority where just for any reason they can randomly pull anyone over. It might seem like that, but they really have to have probable cause. It might be your erratic driving, a taillight broken, but something. Speeding, of course, in some cases. But as many of you know, I was in the Coast Guard many years ago, and I was on a federal law enforcement boarding team on the water where we would board people and do law enforcement. And we had a ton of power because we didn't need probable cause. We had the power to pull over any boat at any time in U.S. waters and even come on on board their boat with no probable cause. And they couldn't do anything to stop us. That is a lot of power. We even had so much power that when we got on the boat, the first question we would usually ask, do you have a weapon? And if so, where is it? And then we would go make that weapon safe. We might even hold on to it until we got off and give it back to him at that point. But we had that much power. And of course, and then we also had the power to do a safety inspection, and they couldn't stop us. 
So in a law enforcement context, that's a lot of power. And so I try to use that to just illustrate the power of God is unmatched by any human means. And here we see the mighty King Agrippa. And without even flinching or or even exercising much strength, God's going to completely thwart his plans to kill Peter as we see Peter delivered on this night. So let's pick up the text in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, that would be to kill him, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So four soldiers essentially surrounding him. And behold, in dramatic fashion, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. See some humor start to come into the text here. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Essentially, he's saying, gird up your loins, buddy. We're going on a trip. Get up, get dressed, come on. Now, we're going to come back to the fact that Peter's sleeping because there's something amazing there I want you to see. But he, he gets him up, and then, he, and then the text tells us in verse 9 that they, he went out and he followed the angel. Now, this is interesting. Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought it was, he was seeing a vision or, or having a dream. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. Now, be honest here. Those of us who are Star Wars fans, how many of you practiced the force on an automatic door before you walked in, right? I mean, I, I did that all the time as a kid. And that's what I think of as I read this. But nonetheless, let's continue. So they go, come up to this iron gate, and it just opens on its own accord without any effort. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, verse 11, we see Peter kind of come to his senses here, and, and, and we see the point of this whole thing, what God has done. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And so we see this contrast between the power of Herod and the power of God. No match. God is sovereign and thwarting. His plans. Now, before we continue, there's some application I want to point out. Again, coming back to this theme that God is sovereign in the storm. One of the, the, the things that God's taught me as I've gone through some of the storms is, and it, 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 comes to, it comes to my mind with a song as well, one of my favorite Christian songs of all time. If you remember the Fireproof movie that came out years ago, and there was a song by John Waller, I Will Worship You While I'm Waiting. If you haven't heard that song, find it and listen to it. It ministers to your soul so well, and it helps to focus that when we're in those times where, like Peter, maybe we're in a prison cell, and there's a circumstance upon us that we can't get out of on our own, and all we can do is really stop and wait. Learning to quiet our soul and worship God as we're waiting is such a fruitful time, and that's where that joy comes in that passes all understanding, that, that peace that passes all understanding. And to visualize this, I want you to think of the story about Jesus calming the storm. Remember when the storm was at its worst, the apostles were freaking out. Where was Jesus? Sleep on the back of the boat. And I've taught that before, and, and a little bit of humor here, but I, I would ask the folks, what do you, what do you think would have been the, the right response of the disciples? Instead of freaking out and trying to save the boat, truthfully, the, the right response would have been for them to curl up next to Jesus lay down right beside him. And that, in a way, is what God's calling us to 
in those times, in those most difficult times. Look how Peter ministers to us here from his first letter, on the passage up on the screen. And he, he would know, but look what he says to us. Look how he instructs us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And this is important. Don't miss this. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That promise is ours if you're in Christ. You and I can take that to the bank. And here's a quote from an early church father, John Chrysostom, who actually preached out of the church of Antioch that we learned about last week. And look what he writes in one of his, his sermon on this very passage. He says, it is beautiful that Paul sings hymns in prison whilst here Peter sleeps. Peter sleeping between those two guards. We can't miss that. The night before he's about to be killed, what does that tell us? He was resting in Christ and he was at peace. So much so that the angel, after a bright light shone into the cell, still had to kick him in the side to wake him up. So let us remember that. God is sovereign in the storm. Moving on in the passage, we'll see the second scene here about how Herod's uh, plan was thwarted. We'll read through quickly because what happens now is Peter goes to the church. Look in verse 12. When he realized this, after he woke from his his, uh, grogginess, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And so this is John Mark. We'll meet him next week on the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. He's also the author of the Gospel of Mark which is really first, uh, really Peter's preaching. So the Gospel of Mark, I believe, is Peter's preaching that Mark will record down. So uh, a great man of God. And so this is his mom's house in Jerusalem. And what's happening here is part of the church is meeting in this house to pray for Peter, who's in prison. They probably did the same thing for James as well. Verse 13, it tells us uh, that Peter knocked on the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is incredible. It's it's humor. This is hilarious. She's so excited that she heard Peter's voice that she forgot to let him in, and she ran to tell the church it was Peter. And it's incredibly ironic that he has this giant iron gate open for him on his own accord, and now the door of the church is closed. He can't even get in there. So Rhoda goes and tells the, the prayer huddle, the folks that are praying, and look what they tell her in verse 15. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Literally, you're insane. And, and then look at, as she continues to insist that he's out there, they're like, no, it's his angel. It's, it's his ghost, in a sense. There was a, a Jewish uh, belief here, again, not biblical, but a superstitious belief that each person had an angel counterpart that actually would looks just like them, And that angel would appear around the time of their death. So that's probably what's behind this. But what's amazing here, the irony is they're praying for Peter to be released. God answers their prayer, and they're unwilling to believe it. They would rather believe that a ghost is at the door than the very man they're praying to be set free. And it's funny. And I can easily judge them and say, hey, come on. But then I have to look into my own heart. You know something? I have doubt in my prayer a lot of the time, too. And this passage made me remember an incredible miracle I want to share with you guys that I was a part of seeing, at least, uh, this past fall. In fact, a month ago, 
And as you know, my son plays football for the Greenville Hurricanes, and they have a middle school football team and a junior varsity football team. And about, I think it was the end of September, it was a Thursday night, I was at the middle school game at Christ Church. The JV was playing up near Asheville, and I get a text from my friend James Nugent. Some of you know James. He's a father of, of a son who played on the JV team. And he said, be in prayer. A parent just collapsed. They're doing CPR. So it was like, whoa. So I made my way over to where the rest of our parents were, the middle school parents, and they had already gotten a similar text from some of their friends on that team. And so we huddled together. We prayed for this woman. Her name was Ashley. We prayed for Ashley. And all of a sudden, we got an update. 15 minutes had gone by, still doing CPR. Uh, 25 minutes had gone by, still doing CPR, now in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. It didn't look good. And, of course, my thought was, she's a goner. There's just no way. So we all kind of uh, settle in. The game, Our game starts. And one of the parents comes up all of a sudden and tells us all, she's at the hospital. They got her heart restarted, and she's breathing on her own. And we're just like, how in the world is that possible? Long story short, they were able to cool her body down, which is done to preserve the brain. Uh, five days later, they, they re, uh, warm her back up, basically, expecting there to be severe brain damage. She wakes up and recognizes everybody in the room and starts talking. I actually talked to her husband two nights ago, and he said there was no side effects from the miracle. And the doctors told her that it, for someone to, to go through what, she, what happened, and by the way, she didn't have a heart attack. Her heart just stopped. It was an electrical issue. She just fell down dead. She went 40 minutes without a heartbeat of her own, and there's nothing wrong with it. And they said that's 0.1% of that happening. And I was, I was God just kind of, Gently slapped me across the face there because I doubted my prayer. And look what he did. Only a miracle can explain that. So let us pray and let us pray with fervency, knowing the God that we have and knowing his power. But there's one other thing we have to understand about prayer. God always answers our prayers. Always answers our prayers. You have to know that. But we also have to understand that sometimes the answer is no. Or not yet have to understand that. We, we forget that. We equate God doing what we ask with answering prayer, and that's not the case. He always answers our prayers, but it may not be the answer we want. So whether we see the miracle or not, whether we see the deliverance or not, we have to trust in the sovereignty of God and pray to him, pray to him knowing that he can do anything. His power is limitless, truly limitless. And one last thing I'm going to give you here as far as prayer application is this. When it comes to our posture in prayer, we can do no better than to model Jesus Christ. Remember the night in the garden, the night he was betrayed? We see it here on the, on the screen from Luke 22. Read this with me. It tells us that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Take the crucifixion away. In my humanity, I don't want this. I know what's coming. If there's any other way, Father, take it from me. And if our Savior, Jesus Christ, can pray and ask God to take this away, then we can also do the same. But we need to say and believe the same thing Jesus says here. Look what he says at the end. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. So as we come to the Lord in prayer, ask him anything. But make sure that last part's in there too. Not my will, Lord. Your will be done. What an example we have in our Savior, Jesus 
Christ. So finishing up the text, they finally let Peter in. He tells them to be quiet, and he describes the miracle. And then he tells them to let James know. Now, this obviously, we just saw James killed, so this obviously isn't the same James. This is the half-brother of Jesus who is a leader in the church. And from this point on, he'll kind of take over leadership as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, one of the pastors. And then we see Peter go into hiding. Now, what happens back at the, uh, the palace isn't good for the guards. Look at Herod. He's upset, of course. A great disturbance has occurred. They can't find Peter. They examine the four soldiers who were on duty. Talk about having a bad shift, right? Uh, I'm sure Herod's convinced at this point it's an inside job. These guys must have let him go. And there was a Roman policy that if a guard let a prisoner go, the guard would suffer the fate of whatever the prisoner's fate was going to be. So Peter was going to be killed. Therefore, these four guards are all executed for what had happened. But nonetheless, let's not miss the main point. God, with very little effort, thwarted the king's plans because he is the real king of all and the king of the Jews. So we've seen these first two uh, ways in which God's sovereign. The last and final one we see, and we'll look at it quickly here, is by taking Herod's life. God, in his sovereignty, killed Herod. He took away the enemy of the church. And this is really important, as we'll see. And as, uh, as I was thinking of this, I was reminded of a great story in the Old Testament. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament comes from Daniel chapter 5, when we see and get to meet Belshazzar, the, the king of Babylon, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. And you might remember this great story, how uh, he was having a party with all his friends, and he said, hey, bring out the vessels and cups that were in the temple of the Jews, and let's put our wine and drink and use those. This man did not fear God, much like Herod Agrippa in our story today. And you'll see this picture reminding us of what took place. The disembodied hand on the wall, writing some words in the Hebrew language. And Daniel, of course, is brought in to interpret these words and uh, tell the king what they said. And essentially it said, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. On this very night, your kingdom will be taken from you. And sure thing, Cyrus comes in and takes over and wipes out the Babylonian Empire. And just an incredible story teaching us the importance of fearing God, knowing who he is, and living a life and thinking things that, that where we, we take into consideration what, what's important to God. That's what the fear of God is, that I care more what he thinks than anyone else. And Herod did not fear God. And let's look what happens to him in verse 20. Uh, this happens immediately after the event of Peter's release. We see that in verse 19, that he he leaves Jerusalem and goes to Caesarea, the other capital in this area. He had a palace there as well. Caesarea, the same place Cornelius lived, the same place that Peter uh, was, was part of that great ministry. But verse 20 tells us that he was very angry, very angry with the two cities to the north of Caesarea. Also, harbor towns where there was a great industry, and the city's names were Tyre and Sidon. And we've heard a lot about these two cities. They kind of go together like Sodom and Gomorrah always spoken of together. And uh, we don't know what it was that angered. We don't know the issue between Herod and these two cities, but something happened. I guess, my guess is it had something to do with money. It always has something to do with money. And so he's probably getting ready to send soldiers in and take them out. So they get kind of scared, start changing their tune, and let's see what happens. They, 
They, uh, it says here that they persuaded Blastus. That was the king's chamberlain, probably with a bribe. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And what's happening here is Galilee supplied all the food for these two cities. And that's, I, I'm guessing that Herod cut the food supply off to make a point. So all of a sudden now, they're not uh, doing what they were doing, and they want to make peace with Herod. Now, what's incredible about this passage in particular is we have another account of it, very similar from Josephus. We mentioned him last week. He was a first century historian. He was Jewish, worked for the Roman Empire, and you could go home, even right now, don't do it, but you could read on your phones uh, from his great book that's been preserved, The Antiquities of the Jews. And in chapter 19, we have an account of this story, which is very similar, uh, and I'll share some of that. But what's amazing is these two accounts, Luke's and Josephus's, they weren't dependent upon one another. They were completely separate accounts, but nonetheless, they do not contradict. So let's see what happens to Herod, starting in verse 21. On an appointed day, now we know from Josephus, this is August 1st, it was, uh, it was Caesar's birthday. So it was a great celebration of Caesar. So on this day, Herod uses it to uh, have Tyre and Sidon come before him and pretty much grovel for forgiveness. So he's using it uh, in this regard. And it, it says that he put on his royal robes. Now, Josephus adds some details here. He says these robes were sewn with silver. And so when Herod came out with this robe of silver in the morning sun, he sparkled and glowed, almost like a god. Continuing on here, he delivered an oration to them. In verse 22, the people of Tyre and Sidon were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Now, what does that mean? And here Josephus says the same thing that Luke's telling us, that they started proclaiming Herod as a deity. They started calling him a god. They essentially were worshiping him, and Herod didn't stop him. Herod didn't tear his robe like we see the appropriate response. He basked in the glow of their adoration and praise. And Josephus even says the very same thing and gives more detail to that effect. In verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Pretty gruesome way to go. Now, many scholars believe because of the two accounts, they can figure out what happened to him. He had some intestinal worms that blocked his plumbing, let's say. And he lived another five days beyond this in excruciating pain, and he died. Because he did not give glory to God, and he did not fear God. So God has removed this threat to the church, the threat to the spread of the gospel in his sovereignty. But look at verse 24, because this is the main point of this part of the passage. But in contrast to Herod who died, the word of God increased and multiplied. And so ends the third major section of the book of Acts with that passage. Now, for us today, what we take away from this is very simply this. Because God is powerful, because of who he is, no one will ever stop the spread of the gospel. No one will ever stop the church. You can't stop him. He's going to complete his mission. And to try to do so is completely futile. Let's be reminded here of what he told Peter in Matthew 16 after Peter confessed him as the Christ. He says this to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And also a quote here from John Stott, which 
um, elaborates this and reminds us of it as well today. He says, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with assurance that even the power of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock. So we need to leave here today being reminded of that very fact and also being reminded of two other things we talked about. One, God's sovereignty in the storm. And two, the need of the church to pray. Prayer has to be the heartbeat and the rhythm of our life as the people of God. I'm going to go ahead and invite the guys to come back up as we close things down here today. And we've seen God's sovereignty in these incredible ways. We've seen that he is the real king of Israel. But one visualization I want to leave you with are the two angels that we see Saul appear in this te- the text. It may have been the same angel, in fact. But look at the difference between the actions of those angels, right? One angel freed the righteous. The other angel killed the unrighteous. And so we cannot leave here without, again, sharing this gospel with all of you. There's a chance someone in here doesn't know the Lord. And one day, each and every one of us will face our creator, whether he comes back or whether we we pass away ourselves. So we want to make sure that we know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So if you have any questions about your salvation, about the state of your soul, we want to talk to you. We want to talk to you today. You guys, Robert's right here in the back. I'll be back there as we uh, end and, and sing our final song, there's nothing more we would want to talk to you about that. Don't leave here today without that matter settled or at least without a conversation starting where we can share this truth with you, that we would have God's grace and not his judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had in your word today. Thank you for this reminder of your sovereignty. We're looking forward to getting into the Gentile mission next week as we uh, turn to Paul and Barnabas. But thank you for this, this reminder, the fact that you're still sovereign amongst the Jews. And we, we have Jewish people around us today and the nation of Israel again. And we, we need to pray for them as well. Help us to pray for your people, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would come to faith in Christ. You would turn their hearts to you as you have ours. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, we pray that you would open their eyes, lead them to faith in Christ. But again, we... We love you, and we love the fact that we have a God who is not a fair-weather friend. You're a God in the storm. Let us know that everybody in this room right now has come out of a storm, is in the middle of a storm, or is going to have a storm coming in the years ahead. And I just pray that we would all remember this. And then we would remember, too, that we're not in it alone. That's what the church is for, that we would surround each other and love one another and go through these things together, arm in arm together, for your glory. Lord, be with us now as we sing this great song, worshiping and reminding us of the very thing that we learned today. You are sovereign in every instance of life, regardless of the circumstances. Let us know this as we leave here today. It's in Christ's name that I pray.